everyone. If you would like to support what I'm doing with Controversies in Church History and help me to expand its reach, please click on my Anchor page and click the support button to donate. Thank you for listening. Let's get started. Um, yeah, so I'm calling this Liturgy Wars, Catholic Liturgy after, after Vatican II, and you can see, uh, if you listen to this podcast, you can't see it, but if you're here today for the lecture, you can kind of see I have all these nice little Photoshop images on my on the screen there. Um, you know, the more traditional on the left, the more experimental on the right. And I want to explain, of course, how those things uh, can exist basically in one, uh, one body and how things got that way to a certain degree here. So let me start out and talk about why liturgy wars, why talk about this. Because I think uh, fairly, uh, most of you here are actually fairly um, into your faith. You're uh, probably not the norm, in other words. Uh, as you know, you've probably seen enough studies about Catholicism, about religious practice in the United States. Um, most people probably don't think much about the liturgy if they are Catholics, even people in the pews every week. But uh, as you know, among those who are more active, there tend to be debates, big ones about the liturgy. And uh, if you pay attention to this stuff, you may have heard this uh, a few weeks ago, I bring it back at the beginning of April. Um, recently in Australia, in Tasmania, a uh, young priest was removed from his parish. Uh, and a group of parishioners sent a letter complaining about uh, changes he had introduced into the parish. Uh, that, quote, only men were allowed to serve at the altar, and they had concerns about mass held in Latin, unquote. Uh, and there's a letter that's actually going around the internet. You may have read this. Uh, you probably shouldn't. It's really nasty. Uh, a, parishioner, a parishioner sent a letter to this. It's a very young priest, by the way, or was, um, in which she basically excoriates him for introducing Latin into the liturgy, doing all these things. And she says of his changes that he made, quote, that they are the same as ISIS or the Taliban coming into town with their troops and telling us this is the way it will be done from now on, unquote. And to top it all off, um, police, well, they stopped investigating, but a few weeks ago there actually was a, an altercation at the church between the, uh, the pastor and a couple of the parishioners. They actually were investigated. He was assaulted, essentially, by two of his parishioners, uh, essentially. Uh, quote, unquote, two of them, uh, three of them pushed and grabbed two other people, including the pastor. Uh, why am I mentioning this? Because, of course, it may, be not, uh, uh, may not be uh, something that most Catholics think about, but obviously some take this really deadly seriously. And so, okay, why are we literally having that type of fight in the Catholic Church, right? We're supposed to be one body, both of those sorts of things. Uh, how did it come to this? How do you explain this? And the first thing, uh, yes, sir. Wait, so basically they beat him up because he was doing it. They didn't beat him. They just pushed him. Well, they, they dropped. There was no investigation. They dropped they the charges. They got physical. They got physical. Yes, because he was it was an argument. Flat. Yeah, among other things. There's a lot more going on than that. Uh, I don't want to. I don't want to go into it. But it's just to illustrate that this is something that's an ongoing phenomenon, uh, right? We're not talking about dead history. It's still with us. Um, one thing I'm going to mention about this in this topic, I'm going to limit myself to the Western Roman Rite in this. When we talk about liturgy wars, there may be some disagreements among the Orthodox uh, Eastern Rite Catholics. For the most part, this is, we're talking Europe, the Americas, Australia, basically, uh, where you have these types of very bitter conflicts about the liturgy. Um, I mention that because there is, as you'll see in the history of this, especially of Vatican II, Concerns about the liturgy in missionary lands is something that actually will feed into liturgical change, but I want to mention it in passing. Uh, and finally, um, I wanted to address just if you don't know, I know some of you are, go to Latin Mass, uh, some of you go to Latin Mass communities, but just to just to set the scene about okay what the liturgy was like 
you're not, you're, and again, exceptions. Most people who call themselves Catholics don't go to the Latin Mass. And the differences between then and now are just so striking, as you're probably aware of. Um, the most obvious thing, of course, is that people, most parishes don't listen to the liturgy is not performed in Latin. Um, back, if you went to a Mass in the 1950s in America, there would be no altar girls. There would be no nobody taking communion in the hand. There would be nobody, when the priest uh, celebrated the liturgy, he would not be facing the people. All these very visible manifestations would be so different. There would be no responsorial parts of the masses, for the most part, in the older liturgy, right? When you repeat the psalm back to the priest, as you do in the modern rite. Uh, the physical space would be very different. Uh, the priest would normally be worshiping at a high altar um, before the council. Big high altar, steps up to the altar. You would take communion normally at a communion rail. Just uh, the physical uh, space was so, so different. Um, and part of this reflected slightly, you could say, in a sociological sense, a more hierarchical church. It was a much more, again, there's a caricature. You've probably heard this phrase, pay, pray, obey. This is the way the lady were expected to act prior to the council. It's a caricature, but the idea was, yeah, you're supposed to follow the priest's lead. And again, this is almost reflected in the liturgy to a certain degree. But it did reflect a sort of general trust in the church that I don't think most people have uh, these days for a lot of different reasons. Um, and I should caution if, uh, most of you, and you probably know this if you if you go to the Latin Rite uh, Masses now, it, 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 one of the actual good things about all the wonderful uh, Latin Mass communities we have this, had today is that they probably, the Masses you go to are probably a lot better celebrated than they were before the Council, to be honest. Uh, it wouldn't have been as well celebrated everywhere. It wouldn't be, I know because I've been to a lot of these communities, these wonderful high Masses on Sunday, but a lot of low Masses that wouldn't have been as... Um, um, maybe as, uh, not everyone was as dedicated, but if you were in a small community where everyone's basically on board, perhaps. But visibly speaking, the mass was essentially the same everywhere in a way it isn't today. Um, and that's, you know, that's why I have that little uh, phrase up there a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, because it's so visibly so different. And that's the thing, of course, people notice, why did that change? Right. Why did that change? How did it happen? And when I try to answer that for you the best I can, I warn you I cannot do it perfectly, but we'll do what we can. I have to start, though, before the Second Vatican Council, which introduced a lot of these changes, with something called the liturgical movement. And the liturgical movement was, um, well, one thing. First of all, there have been reforms of the liturgy in uh, the history of the Catholic Church. Uh, it, was, it has not been static. Um, at any time, in the sense of always being exactly the same. There have been reforms made to the Roman breviary, that we call the, the divine office today. There have been, you know, for example, reforms to the calendar at the Council of Trent. They pruned away a lot of different saints' days to get them out of the calendar, to sort of make it manageable, stuff like this. There have been um, those types of reforms, <coughs> excuse me, throughout, um, throughout the history of the Western Rite. But they tended to always be... Um, always be taken in continuity with what preceded it in a very self-conscious way. Um, reforms that took place in the past, and I don't have time to go into this, it was always a point of departure. Does this match up with what we've received? Does this match up with tradition? And um, what's going to happen is, starting in the 19th century, you're going to have, because the, the dates of what we call the liturgical movement really date back in the 19th century, 
Um, if you, people like, if you know who Dom Prosper uh, Garanger was, he was someone who, if you don't know, uh, by the 19th century, Gregorian chant had sort of almost passed into abeyance. He's the monk and scholar who sort of resurrected it at the Salem's Abbey in France. And there's, there are actually people doing this in the 19th century to a certain degree, restoring certain authentic parts of the liturgy. But the modern reform of the Roman Rite really begins in the 20th century uh, with one man, Pius X, Pope Pius X, um, who in 1903 uh, issued an encyclical. Um, uh, the name, I'm trying to pronounce this, Trales Solicitudinini, I like my Latin, like good there, um, which was an encyclical on, uh, on sacred music um, because he wanted to encourage the singing of Gregorian chant at Mass. Uh, he was particularly uh, um, uh, motivated by, um, uh, discour he wanted to discourage the use of, excuse me, <coughs> concert music from the Mass. And by concert music, <clears throat> I mean things like, well, Mozart, <laughs> stuff you may have heard and loved, like Ave Verne Carapos, beautiful stuff like this, but <clears throat> to Pius X, that was sort of, you know, having profane music in the liturgy. He didn't like that that much. He wanted to, as it were, make Gregorian chant great again and try to encourage it in, the, in, in parishes and in other uh, places in the Catholic Church. <clears throat> and um, he also issued an encyclical in 1911 called Divini, Divini Aflantu, which uh, embarked upon a reform of the office of the Roman bereavery. And this is, this is um, usually taken as a, start, a real starting point for the liturgical reform because, well, two things. One is that he does this pretty much on his own authority. And this is something, if you don't know about the bishops of Rome, um, the popes began to, uh, to exercise more and more authority over the church after Vatican I. And for the most part, they have never taken the initiative the way they do in the 20th century to reform the liturgy. And in fact, Pius X has his critics, by the way, among traditionalist authors, I might add, uh, for his reform, which for the most part was, just to boil it down, uh, it was becoming too unwieldy for priests to do every day to say the Psalms. There were so many, he wanted to cut it down. But <clears throat> he actually rearranged the, changed the arrangement of Psalms in the, in the Psalter, in the breviary. Horror of horrors. Why is that a bad thing? Well, first of all, it had not been touched that arrangement of psalms ever in the history of the Western Rite. So it's in other words, he's kind of, in a weird way, breaking from tradition using his authority. Again, it's not huge and major, but it sets a kind of a precedent to a certain degree. And, and he did set a precedent. In fact, it's, uh, and by the way, one of the things he emphasizes, you can see up here, uh, he emphasizes a word, I'm gonna, I don't have the Latin here. Oh yeah, I do have it. Participatio actuosa. He wants to encourage what he calls active participation among the faithful. What he means by this most likely is people that have a, an interior sense of what the liturgy is and who are more engaged with it. And again, if you don't know, um, um, litur liturgists before the Second Vatican Council complained about this endlessly. They complain about people going to mass, not paying attention, praying their rosary, doing private devotions while the liturgy is going on, treating it as if it's just a thing going on doing their own thing. And so he wants them to engage. This is one of the big, as we'll get to in a moment, one of the big aims of what's going to become to be called the uh, liturgical movement is to, if you like, raise the consciousness of the liturgy amongst the faithful. Uh, and it spurs, basically, from 1914 onward, <clears throat> a group of clerics, monastics, uh, and, uh, and liturgical scholars uh, do pious tense actions. Uh, which will come to be called the liturgical movement. Uh, the man who's most associated with the founding of this is Dom Lambert Baudouin, who is a uh, priest uh, at the Belgian monastery of Mont César in Belgium. Uh, and he published a book in 1914 called The Piety of the Church, in which he issues kind of a, 
a call to call to recover the the original meaning, the authentic meaning of the liturgy, um, and to edge more particularly to educate the laity on the nature of the liturgy, to um, you know through liturgical scholarship, through historical study of the liturgy. Um, basically encourage what they call liturgical piety, to make the people at Mass more aware of the riches of the Mass, of what the prayers mean, of um, uh, to make it more part of their life. Their, part of his goal is to literally, part of Dom, uh, uh, Dom Lambert's um, goal is to have people's personal prayer be modeled on the liturgy itself, the liturgy of the hours, stuff like this. He wants to bring those together. People like uh, uh, Dom Lambert, Father Louis Boyer, who's a great French uh, reformer, um, they see Catholics treating the, uh, the public liturgy as totally separate from their personal lives, their prayer lives. They want to bring those things together. They want to bring people to the liturgy as it stands so they can understand it better in many ways. Um, they talk about, they criticize people for what they call individualism. That's what they're thinking about people at mass doing their own thing and stuff like this. They want, to, they want people to see um, the liturgy as sort of the the, the thing that, you know, the Eucharist and the grace that comes from it as sort of creating people as the body of Christ, as one body. Um, people like Dom Otto Cassel, who's a, a German monk, writes a famous book called The Mystery of the, uh, the Christian Mystery. It's about the um, um, mystical elements of the Mass. He had a kind of weird theory nobody takes seriously anymore, historically speaking, but he was very influential in influencing people to see this as, as this encounter with this great mystery. And so you have uh, these... Um, these reformers doing more and more scholarship. They're, they're doing other things besides this to educate the lady. They will um, um, organize conferences. They will organize things they call liturgical weeks. Liturgical weeks are sort of campaigns to educate the lady and, and priests, generally speaking, about what the liturgy is, the prayers, those sorts of things, its history, its theology, uh, and make them more aware of it. Uh, and as I said before, this is, and, I, and I'll emphasize it again when I say this, their goal is to raise their level of individual piety. For the most part, their goal is not to revise or reform the liturgy. They do advocate things like, again, simplifying the rites to a certain degree, again, trimming down the calendar, uh, maybe uh, getting some of the, rid of some of the ritual gestures. There are a lot more of them before the 1960s, even before the 1962 Missal, by the way, that most of you probably worship with. They want to get rid of some of the uh, excesses they see there. Uh, and that's mostly what they want, is so that the people can recommend mass and understand it better. One of the key things that happens in the course of the early part of the 20th century, especially when you get after World War II, is that the papacy will increasingly take up um, some of the goals of this liturgical movement. Um, particularly after World War II, <clears throat> Pius XII, who in his encyclical Mediator Dei, will cautiously <laughs> endorse some of the goals of the liturgical movement. It's actually a really interesting encyclical. You should probably read it. Um, but at the same time, he also warns against certain types of exaggerations within the, within the, uh, uh, the liturg uh, liturgical movement. And um, basically, there are two things, essentially, that he and other people will warn about and will become a problem is um, something he calls antiquarianism. This is the idea that um, this may sound paradoxical if you're big into tradition, that basically that which is most ancient is more true or more authentic. That is the idea that, OK, the liturgy in the fourth century was, was perfect, and everything that came after it was a corruption or a declension away from that. That's, that's essentially a Protestant move, right? Everything was better back in antiquity when things were primitive. 
uh, things uh, as they get closer to modern times suck. I'm being, I'm being colloquial for a reason, but that's essentially the idea he's criticizing. And there are some of these scholars who sort of tend towards that. The other sort of excess he talks about, and he doesn't use these terms, I'm using it, um, is a, a sort of excess, uh, excessive need, because there is, there is a, a pastoral need to try to meet people where they're at to a certain degree. But you have this, you have some scholars who go fairly far toward adapting the liturgy to modern ideas, almost for its own sake, right? As if, and I'll come back to this, uh, to this metaphor, as almost as if the liturgy is some like software you update, which is not what it is, <laughs> right? The liturgy is supposed to be, right, uh, um, the, you know, um, it represents the eternal and the unchanging, right? There are human elements that can change, but you can't go changing it all the time or too many things that will basically destroy its integrity of the right. Nonetheless, uh, Pius XII does sort of give his, in this way, his blessing to it. And he will set up a commission in 1948 to study reforms of the liturgy, uh, out of which will come a couple of different actual revisions to the liturgy before the 1960s. The most important of these is the reform of the Holy Week service in 1955. They changed several things about this. I won't dwell on this for too long, but the main thing he did is that by that time, most people celebrated, for example, the Easter Vigil on Saturday morning, and he wanted to restore that, wanted to restore Monday, Thursday, um, Holy Thursday, to their, to their proper times. And so things like that, things that weren't necessarily, they were meant to bring, back, bring out the authenticity of the right, but again, they all also, also kind of... Um, Again, there are changes that are made with the advice of, and actually the other thing I should mention about this, is that the papacy takes on more and more the, the advice, the arguments of the liturgical scholars. And I have to stress this about, um, about this movement. Um, by the time you get to the second generation of these reform, of, of the liturgical movement, the uh, post-war uh, post uh, cohort, if you like, of scholars, this is, this is, in some ways, kind of unprecedented because now for the first time in history you have Catholic scholars using modern tools of historical scholarship to subject the, the liturgy to historical study. And now, I don't mean to say that's a bad thing. It's not in and of itself. One of the good things you can do, what historical scholarship has done this, and some of the members of the liturgical movement did, did things that were absolutely essential, is you can recover more of that authentic meaning that has been sort of covered over. But there's always a danger <laughs> um, to subject divine revelation too much to human expertise. Because then you get the idea that it's just like anything else subject to human reason. Uh, and especially, you can kind of see this, I think, as you get toward um, the 1950s, 1960s, some of these scholars do tend to take a more, um, that tension between adhering to tradition and needing to adapt it is pretty much, for the most part, held in a pretty good balance. Actually, as you'll see in, in Vatican II, its main document. I think it, for the most part, does that. But there are some scholars who want to go more towards, oh, more adapting, more changing the right, rather than changing people's consciousness of it. And so we'll come to that. Um, but there's still a fairly good balance, I think, before, uh, before Vatican II. Uh, but you have this trend, um, this alliance, if you like, between papal authority and liturgical expertise going into the, the Second Vatican Council. Which, um, which is what's going to happen uh, in the creation of uh, the new liturgy. So that brings us to Vatican II. And Sacrosanctum Concilium, if you don't know, that is the, bless you, is the Constitution on the Sacred Liturgy uh, uh, issued by the Second Vatican Council. And so I'll talk a little bit about a couple of things uh, in terms of preparations for the Council 
you did have um, several um, um, several attempts to canvas bishops across the world about potential reforms they might like to the liturgy before Second the Second Vatican Council. Um, there, of course, were prepar uh, preparatory commissions which studied the liturgy, came up with schemas for the reform of the liturgy before the Second Vatican Council uh, met. Uh, according to one historian, Joseph Kamunchak, um, when eventually they did begin um, uh, issuing documents during the council, they began with the liturgy because they thought they did have more agreement on that than anything else going into that council. And I, I have to say, I think it's maybe a little bit overstated. Um, basically, there's not really there's not really a big call for reform of the liturgy for most of the world's bishops. This is the thing I'm going back and emphasizing expertise. Most of the call for the reform is coming from those liturgical experts uh, in, you know, I've glossed over that there are all these uh, liturgical institutes, institutes founded throughout Europe, United States. Um, there's one up that uh, still exists, uh, St. John's Abbey in uh, Minnesota. This is one of the centers of the liturgical reform movement in, uh, in the uh, United States. Um, there are actually a couple of agreements on a couple of things, mostly among these reformers and most of the bishops who want reform. Basically two things. Um, they want to introduce more vernacular into the liturgy to help people understand. The other thing basically that they agree on, as far as I can tell, is uh, some simplification of the rite. Beyond that, there's not really all that much agreement about what to do. Uh, and again, it's not as if no one's running around saying, oh my God, we're all going to go to hell because this liturgy is terrible and it doesn't do Nobody's saying that about the liturgy prior to the 1960s, prior to the coming of the council. When they do start debating it, when the council starts, according to Kamanchak, um, when they start debating the liturgy, um, he will say that the fiercest debates are over the liturgy, actually, uh, that they have, uh, some of the fiercest debates. In fact, the two things they debate, debate more than anything else are, one, the issue of the vernacular, uh, but also, too, and this will be a problem as you'll see going forward, um, the issue of authority over the liturgy. Who has the authority to revise the rites or to change things will also be a big issue in this. Uh, and so they're already beginning to have, there's, uh, this is my point, is I think there was a lot more disagreement than they actually realized when they started. This is probably the reason why things turn out the way they do, at least one of them. But Sacrosanticum is the first one, first constitution promulgated. And um, in general, it for the most part lays down just general principles. And the biggest thing, and I'll show you some quotations in a second, is that it, it basically says that in, it, it basically mandates a reform of the liturgy. It does. But it says the, mo the most important thing is to increase the level of active participation of the faithful. That says that above all of their concerns. It says this in the, in the document. But it also makes a point to say that this reform should be in continuity with tradition. Again, I'll show you some actual words from this. It also calls for the adaptation of rights uh, of the rights uh, for greater comprehension by the faithful. Again, simplifying them so they can understand things. Uh, the, the, the thinking, by the way, is they understand things better. They'll come uh, to mass more often. It is, by the way, and I should mention, the biggest calls for reform tend to come from the bishops of Germany. Uh, Belgium, uh, France, the Netherlands, those are all, by the way, the, the places in Europe that after World War II, um, practice of the faith drops off the most. And their thinking is, hey, if they understand it better, they'll come back to the faith or come back to the mass. And then finally, basically, they call for, and this is actually 
in and of itself one of the most, because there aren't, honestly aren't that, individually speaking, that many radical things in Sacrum Sanctum Tegilium. This actually is. They call for the reform of virtually everything. The liturgy, the, all the rites of the sacraments, the rite of baptism, everything. Everything is going to be revised according to these, um, these, um, these principles. And I have to say, that's one of the things that is, if you want to call it revolutionary, is revolutionary about this, because there have been reforms to virtually everything I've just mentioned within the Catholic Church. I do, there's been nothing like this where they're all being reformed at once. And one of the things I'll, I'll talk about a little, a little bit, there is a definite rush to do it. Uh, in the Sacro Sancto Concilium, it says the liturgical book should be revised as soon as possible, which is one of the things I, I would criticize about it. It really makes no sense to do it as fast as possible, but there's a push for it. So uh, there's the general aspect that it has. It does make a few specific reforms, not many. It does call for the introduction of vernacular into certain parts of the liturgy, only certain parts. It says specifically that the Latin, language, Latin tongue is to be preserved in the rite. So it was never a plan of the council to get rid of Latin from the liturgy altogether. It calls for more scripture readings. There were a lot of proposals before the council. They wanted to give, they wanted people to be more exposed to scripture, um, to um, create a longer cycle of readings where you get in the modern rite a three year cycle of readings they did not have before. Um, it said, and I'll show you again, I won't show you so bad, but it says basically in Sanctum Concilium that uh, Gregorian chant is to have pride of place among forms of music allowed in the Mass, but makes allowance for other types, doesn't specify which ones. It allows for instruments other than the organ to be played at Mass. Again, doesn't, uh, doesn't uh, specify which ones. They probably didn't mean the kazoo, but well, uh, I'm sure somebody has tried. Uh, and then finally, this is another thing that they don't, I'm not, again, I'm going to brush off here. They're mostly talking, they're mostly thinking about Africa and Asia, obviously, but mission territories. You did have some bishops from Africa complaining about the Latin liturgy because this is the language of, you know, um, the colonial powers that have colonized them. So they're thinking about those things. And that's basically it. There's no mention of altars, there's no mention of the way the, the priest faces during the liturgy, none of that stuff in, uh, in uh, Sancto Sanctum Tuncilium. One other thing it does mention is the authority of the liturgy, about who has the, uh, the right to actually reform it. It does, while reserving final say to the, to the Vatican, to the Holy See, it will great, grant, uh, grant greater authority to bishops and bishops' conferences. That's probably the biggest, because bishops, according to canon law, have always had some, uh, uh, some ability to do this. Um, but bishop conferences are very new things in the 1960s. They're created almost out of thin air. Um, they're novelties. Um, and yet it still reiterates, and that's a quotation, no other person, unquote, is allowed, to, no priest, even if he is a priest, is allowed to make alterations of the liturgy. You may find that odd, since I've been to so many priests. <laughs> you go to any sort of ordinary liturgy, you on a Sunday, you might see priests meeting this, doing that. Uh, but yeah, they're not supposed to be doing that according to the council. And then finally, they mention, they mandate, actually, the creation of diocesan commissions on the liturgy, but also sacred music and sacred art. And so what I'm saying is basically it creates new centers of authority, if you like, who can tinker with the liturgy. This will have an effect, as I'll try to, try to make the case for in a minute. So big changes. <clears throat> so what does it say? A few, few quotations here. On active participation, excuse me, in the restoration and promotion of the sacred liturgy, this full and active participation, those are my emphases, not in the text, by all the people is the aim to be considered before all else. Uh, to get people, 
however you define it, actively participating. And that is, by the way, one of the problems with that phrase. It's not exactly something they define in the text. Uh, is the aim before anything else. Secondly, the Christian people, that's uh, paragraph 14, paragraph 21, the Christian people, so far as possible, should be enabled to understand them with ease and to take part in them fully, actively, and as befits a community, right? So there is that emphasis. It's a real strong one on that. On adaptating, adapt, adaptating, adapting uh, the rights to modern, modern times. The rights should be distinguished by a noble simplicity. This is, a, this is a phrase that sticks in the craw of some because I have no idea what it means either. They should be short, clear, and unencumbered by useless repetitions. And by the way, there were a lot of repetitive texts in the, in the liturgy that you can always take some things out. But what are useless repetitions? doesn't define it. They should be within the people's powers of comprehension and normally should not require much explanation. But also says it should be in continuity with the tradition. This is a long quote from paragraph four. In faithful obedience to tradition, the sacred council declares that Holy Mother Church holds all lawfully acknowledged rights to be of equal right and dignity, that she wishes to preserve them in the future and to foster them in every way. The council also de desires that where necessary, the rights be revised carefully in the light of sound tradition, that they be given new vigor to meet the circumstances and needs of modern times. So you're renewing what you've been given. You're not just tossing it out. Or at least that's not what you're supposed to be doing anyway. More. There must be no innovations unless the good of the church genuinely and certainly requires it, requires them. And care must be taken that any new forms adapted should in, so, in some way grow organically from already existing, from forms already existing. As far as possible, notable differences between the rites used in adjacent regions must be carefully avoided. So there are these... Um, <clears throat> there is an emphasis on trying to make this incontinuity. So there is, uh, these things, by the way, are a little bit in tension, but they're held together, I think, decently well in the text. <coughs> so you have that, uh, you have what sounds like a reasonable balance between adaptation, tradition, maybe. So what happens? Okay, how do we get to a place where that goes totally in a different direction? The travails of Rome, the travails of, uh, the travails of Rome, reform in Rome, 1964 to 1976. The Constitution is promulgated in 1963. Uh, John XXIII dies, and Pope Paul VI is elected in his place. And he will, uh, will create a commission called the, I think I have this here. Uh, yes, the, uh, boy, it's long, Concilium ad exequendum. Constitutionem de Sacra Liturgia, the uh, Commission for the Implementing of the Constitution on Sacred Liturgy. We call it the Concilium for short. So it's called the Concilium. Uh, to implement those reforms mandated by the Council. <clears throat> a couple of things to note about this. One is that he, there was a congregation, it's called the Congregation for uh, Sacred Rights, which normally handled this sort of thing. Paul VI created a, uh, a commission which was uh, completely independent of it. In other words, it uh, answered directly to the Pope. Why is this important? Um, the secretary who ran, the head of the commission was a man named Cardinal Lacaro. The person who made this commission work was this man, Annibal, Father Annibal Bonini, uh, who was its secretary until it uh, was dissolved in 1975. And um, yeah, that should be motives and not motive views or whatever that says up there. Um, and uh, he is the controversial figure in this story because he was friends with uh, Father Montini, uh, Papa Montini, before he became uh, Paul VI. 
they shared kind of similar views on the reform of the liturgy. Paul VI was very, uh, before he became pope, very insistent that if you know, we don't change the liturgy in the vernacular, people will just leave the faith. That was one of his big bugaboos. Uh, Annabelle Bonini was someone who had been publishing, <clears throat> excuse me, um, uh, his own, well, his own, a liturgical journal from 1940s onward, 1943, <clears throat> in which he had been advocating, excuse me, uh, reforms, to the liturgy, reforms to the right of the liturgy, much more in the line of, instead of raising people's consciousness so they can understand the liturgy as it is, much more to change the liturgy to adapt it to modern times. Um, he was someone who had those sorts of qualities. He was also someone who was very, how can I put this, he was a really good organizer. He was a very good um, bureaucrat. Uh, what I mean by that is, to give you an example, he took over the journal Ephemerides Liturgicae in 1943. Um, they had 96 subscribers and was on the verge of being dissolved. Within two years, it had over, had over 3,000 subscribers. Uh, again, he was someone who knew how to get things done. As you're going to see, he ran the commission that basically produced an entire new liturgy in five years, which I, I admit I don't like the outcome of that commission at all, but uh, to get things done, get anything done in Rome in five years is pretty amazing. So you're talking about someone who's very capable, but he has ideas that are probably not uh, nimble to the tradition. You also have questions about, at the time, his methods and his motives for doing the things he does because, well, two things. One, the... Uh, Concilium itself is a very international body. A lot of people, uh, members, in fact, most, in fact, all the members, except for him, are not resident in Rome. So for the better part of each year this is going on, he's the only person and his two secretaries in Rome. And he has, by the way, unfettered access to Paul VI. And people like Father Louis Boyer, if you know who this is, he was a liturgical reformer before the 1960s. Um, a few years ago, he published his, uh, his memoirs were published, and he talks about um, he really despised uh, Father Bonini, uh, partly because he, in his mind, was manipulating the Pope. Uh, I won't go into too much detail, but essentially, Boyer was uh, talking to Paul VI at one point where they were reforming the liturgy. Neither one of them were terribly satisfied with the thing that they'd actually signed off on. And then Father Boyer asked the Pope, well, why did you, we, you know, this was what you wanted, wasn't it? Well, no, Bonini said the, the concilium was, uh, the, count, the commission wanted this. He's like, no, we were all divided. He told us you wanted this. Uh, and this happened apparently a lot. And I think this is one of the things people have a problem uh, with about Father Bonini is his methods, <clears throat> as well as the actual ideas that he had. Um, but he was certainly the person responsible for it because it probably could not have been done the way it was done without, his, uh, without him being the secretary of the, to the commission as he was. And so the first steps toward the reform, um, taken early 1964 in January, um, when um, Paul VI issued a motu, motu proprio called Sacrum Liturgium, which issued temporary norms um, for the, the liturgy. Because they, they um, you know, the reform of the liturgy, I mean, it probably should have taken, they probably should have took their time anyway, but people, their liturgical institutes were basically saying it should take about a decade. And so instead of, you know, waiting, letting people keep the old right until they actually have a new one, they basically started, you know, basically telling them to change things right away. And that's essentially what those temporary norms do. And um, the next month in February, you have the first instruction issued by um, the Concilium, Inter uh, Ecumenici, which <coughs> um, starts eliminating parts of the Mass, the people... Mm, Things like the last gospel, uh, if you know that what that is from the, uh, the uh, old missal, the Leonine prayers as well. Um, 
it begins making allowances for things like mass facing people. Doesn't mandate it, but it says you can do this. Uh, it says uh, uh, it says inter uh, community says that uh, altars uh, preferably should be freestanding so that uh, priests can do uh, processions around them, but doesn't really mandate freestanding altars. Uh, it says virtually nothing regarding the way that um, the way that. Uh, communions to be received. Nothing like that gets touched for the most part. Um, but but uh, it also um, um, but it sort of broaches these things. Um, but the new liturgy, the, the new temporary norms were supposed to go into effect at Advent in November of 1964, which they do. And when they do, by the way, basically um, um, Many other changes have gone way beyond what either uh, the temporary norms or the first instruction have actually mandated or allowed, even allowed for. And we'll get to the, how that happens in a moment. Uh, I do want to talk about this because they are, and this is the thing, they were supposed to reform uh, the missile. What they do in effect is create a new one. Um, and um, one of these things I think has to do with this, and I still don't know the reason why. I really couldn't find out. But there is... In the documents, the instructions issued by Concilium, in Sancrosanctum Concilium, in Paul VI's uh, uh, issue of uh, motu proprio on, on temporary norms, there is this uh, just hellfire rush to get this out. Uh, and I still don't understand it to this day, why you had to rush through, as if, again, there was something, there was a, there was a, a sell-by date on the, on the liturgy as it had st uh, stood, and it was no longer any good. Very strange. Um, Although I'll say this, uh, sometimes when you have reformers who get control of things, they like to go as quickly as possible before anybody says no. And that may be one of the things that's going on in these documents. I don't know that for a, uh, for a fact. Nevertheless, a, an interim, there are actually several interim um, missile missiles uh, issued in 1965, 67, by, uh, by the concilium. Um, and they tinker with all, I don't just have time to go through all this, but they tinker with so many things that had not been tinkered with before. The most controversial of which is the canon of the mass. Because if you don't know, if you don't go to the, if you go to, to, a, to an ordinary parish, you probably will never hear, of course you don't hear it anyway if you go to the old missile, but you get the idea. The, idea. Um, the main Eucharistic prayer that had been in the Roman liturgy since the late sixth century was the Roman canon. And uh, it had never been touched. Since then, we're talking about the days of Gregory the Great. This is 590s, early early 600s. And in fact, um, what uh, Father Brunini actually in his memoir says that they they didn't and they didn't, by the way, actually touch it because they were afraid to. It was of such an antiquity. It was so beloved by liturgists they didn't touch it. What they did instead was start making up new ones. And I mean literally making up new, brand new Eucharistic prayers out of old bits and pieces of ancient prayers they found that liturgical scholars had found. Uh, and there were several, by the way, criticisms of the Roman canon, why it wasn't suitable to a modern liturgy, right? Well, one thing is, of course, if you do, they wanted to start, because the, if you don't know, the Eucharistic prayers were already always said, uh, basically whispered by the priest at the altar. You couldn't hear them before this. And they wanted these to be said aloud in the new rite. So one of the problems they didn't like about it was that it was too long, which, by the way, if you go to, the, go to an ordinary parish, is the reason you never hear it, because it's, it's too long. It makes the mass longer. Um, the second reason was there were objections that it was, if you, I'll explain this in a second, it was too local. You know that? If you listen to the Roman canon, uh, it lists, among other things, a long list of saints that are peculiar to the city of Rome. 
Why? Because that's the right you worship in, the Roman right. It's associated with the saints of this ancient city of Rome. Uh, thirdly, its, it's uh, style was taken, said to be not suitable. What does it mean by that is that it's kind of, if you think of liturgy in very rationalistic terms, that everything has to be very clear and logically well-ordered in a linear sort of fashion, the Roman canon is not like that. In fact, traditional things are never like that because they grow up, you know, over time as they sort of do eh, without that sort of, you know, very geometric uh, sequential logic. That's what makes them beautiful, by the way. <laughs> um, and so you had, and by the way, there are other criticisms, one of which was that um, the Roman canon does not include an epiclesis. You know what epiclesis is? This is, a, this is an invocation during the prayer of the Holy Spirit to come down and transform the bread and wine, basically, in the body and blood of Christ. Why they make this criticism? Because there are there's an epiclesis in all the Eastern liturgies. And there was kind of a vogue for this in the 1960s. Um, and so what you have are, and the one, by the way, most of you, if you go to the Novus Order, what you would hear, what you would hear every Sunday mostly is Eucharistic Prayer 2, which um, if you um, it used to be thought it, thought this was actually a, an apocryphal story, was actually composed in a Roman trattoria in 1968. Literally, it was made up by two uh, theologians in a Roman cafe uh, because Father Bonini had given these two theologians 24 hours to make up a new one. <laughs> and they managed to do this. We know this, by the way, because Father Louis Boyer was one of the ones who did this. Uh, by the way, he quit the commission after the, he, he hated the whole thing. He hated Father Bonini in the worst way. Um, and they took, by the way, just to give you an idea, just this inside baseball, but they took an anaphora uh, that came from a, a um, particular prayer that was uh, attributed to uh, St. Hippolytus of Rome. Uh, Hippolytus is a saint from the second century, 230s AD. This seemed to be more ancient, right? Remember that I, uh, idea I, I told you about early antiquarianism, something that ancient is better? Uh, and that was one of the things they did, you know, uh, liturgical scholars had come to the conclusion. The thing is, since then, there's a consensus that it's not actually by Hippolytus and probably not from the third century. And this is one of the problems where you rush to judgment based on most recent scholarship. Sometimes it turns out to be wrong. It's not their fault, by the way. The scholars who did that stuff are really great scholars. But uh, there was a rush to do this. And you wind up sort of covering over this untouched part of the mass with all these. There are four Eucharistic prayers in the modern rite. Uh, and this is just one of the many changes they made, I should emphasize. And then finally, uh, one reviewer of, um, of a biography of, uh, of uh, Father Bonini actually used this term. The, the way they went about reforming the rite was to actually uh, use the term beta testing. Literally, there were several different sort of experimental liturgies that uh, Father Bonini and members of the Concilium uh, celebrated before uh, a commission of bishops in Rome, none of which those bishops liked very much. Uh, there were lots of dissension about them. They were, uh, it didn't really go over well, is my point. Um, but it went ahead anyway uh, by 1969 uh, when it was ready to actually put out. And this brings me, and I'll come to that in a moment, this brings me to Paul VI, because this is one of the things that's most probably controversial about this whole process. Uh, honestly, I, I, I didn't, I, I've read a lot actually of um, uh, his encyclicals, some of the general audiences. I'm still not sure what he thought he was doing, to be honest with you, because he was someone who he definitely wanted to change, he wanted to adapt the rights. He thought he believed in that. In fact, he actually begins, even before the temporary norms go into effect, celebrating the mass 
in Italian uh, and facing the people in 1964. That's a picture right there of that first mass. And again, this was picked up by the press. It was picked up by television. This became, oh, what, the Pope is now celebrating. You know, this is what we're supposed to do now, basically. And yet, throughout this entire process, as he is pushing forward this reform, there are multiple times where he expresses, I think, serious misgivings about what's going on. Uh, 1966, for example, uh, he uh, issues a letter called Sacrificium Laudis, which was a letter to the um, um, letter to religious orders uh, across the world, whose sole purpose was to get them to retain the Latin language. Again, the council had said they should do this, right? Um, they didn't do this. <laughs> Almost none of them, basically. Um, and at the same time, though, he, is, he gives several general audiences. You can find these on the internet, by the way, if you want, I can tell you where to find them. Where he and his general audiences try to, tries to convince the faithful that, no, really, we're, it's the same mass. It's the same mass. Everything's going to be the same, even though we've, he says at the same time, it's a great revolution. He uses those types of terms because the things they do, they, and he identifies, by the way, the change of Eucharistic prayers as being the big difference, um, that it's actually the same thing. And I have to say, you read through his, his defenses, it's almost like he's trying to convince himself at the same time. Um, and again, one of the things that's most, and we don't actually know that much about, partly because we don't actually have access yet to um, Father Brunini's personal letters, is what exactly the relationship was like. Because I, this is just me speculating. He, you can say a lot of things about Paul VI is a controversial figure for a lot of reasons. Uh, he strikes me as being, a, 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 to be frank, a weak person. Uh, who was trying his best in a very trying time. And he seemed like the kind of person who could be manipulated, is my point. Um, but we don't know. I don't know, actually. Um, Bunini, Father Benini's papers aren't available to us, his personal papers, as I said before. Uh, and he kind of reminds me of, uh, he's kind of a hamlet of this whole, this whole, <laughs> this whole play, if you want to put it that, put it in the, that regard. Um, just to give you just one offhand example, this is long after the, the liturgical rites had been reformed. It's 1974. He had his Secretary of State issue a letter. Um, you can find an image of this on the internet if you look hard enough. To uh, a, a sacred music conference in Italy in 1974, basically trashing the use of pop music in in, uh, in the Catholic liturgies. He really he hated it and he loved sacred music and yet. Again, he was helping push forward these reforms that made all this possible. It's a very confusing thing about Paul VI. Um, I mention this because of all the sort of things that went wrong. If there was one person who probably could have stopped it before it got that way, it would have been Paul VI, and he simply didn't do it. And so the new rite arrives in 1969. Uh, he promulgates this in May of that year. And uh, in fact, it doesn't actually go into effect right away. Why? Because there are severe criticisms of not actually the text as much as the general instruction for the Roman Missal. If you know what the general instruction of the Roman Missal is, this is essentially the, the liturgical law, which indicates how it's to be celebrated. And if you, it's, you can't really find copies of it anymore, but the, the, uh, G, uh, the germ that was, I'll give the acronym, the germ that was issued in 1969 really is a, it's a pretty astounding document because it basically talks about the mass like a Protestant would. Um, that the mass is a, a memorial. That the church is basically the, the, the a gathering of believers. It's really, it's kind of amazing. It got through and got published. And in fact, they did criticize it so much. There was a uh, so it's called the Ottaviani uh, intervention. Ottaviani is a was a um, 
bishop, a cardinal at the, uh, in the Curia, Vatican II, was very much opposed to the changes of the liturgy. He put his name to a letter that wasn't really written by him, making some severe criticisms both of the, the, uh, the Missal, the GRM, but, uh, GIRM, but also Vatican II, which uh, he didn't actually agree with because they actually went back and changed the general instruction, changed all the language, got all that stuff out of there. Uh, one of the things they didn't do, by the way, in the first one is they didn't mention the Council of Trent at all. They mentioned the kind of, they referenced the Council, they made sure, oh, yes, we're actually doing this in continuity after that. And so it was finally released, revised, and we released again in 1970. The missile went into effect in 1970. By 1970, the new Liturgy of the Hours was ready as well. Um, there are several other things that go into effect. Um, but by that time, there, and long story short, there seems to be a falling out to a certain degree between the Pope and Father Bonini. He still, and by the way, Father Bonini still had plans for further reforms uh, in 1975. He was actually trying to make up more Eucharistic prayers and put them in the liturgy, which Paul VI signed off on and then immediately almost dissolved the concilium and his career ended essentially as a third reformer. Uh, and the reform at least officially came to an end in 1975. So uh, kind of a stormy time in Rome for all this. So I've been focusing on, in that aspect, the uh, change in Rome. What about change on the ground? Uh, change on the ground in 1964 to 1966. This is going to be really broad because this is one of the hardest things to actually research about what was going on. But a few major points we'll make um, to keep you guys in here. Um, one is that, for the most part, the implementation uh, in practical terms of the liturgy was left to liturgical experts, liturgical, liturgical commissions. And um, I mentioned some of those liturgical reformers in the reform movement before the Second Vatican Council. A lot of them were periti, um, experts at the, the Second Vatican Council. Uh, many of these people had, uh, these reformers had experimented with different types of liturgy before the Second Vatican Council. Things like dialogue masses, you know what this is. This is, again, call and response like stuff like you would see in the modern rite. Um, some places got, and there were actually a lot of places that got papal permission to introduce vernacular into certain parts of the liturgy before Vatican II, those sorts of things. You also, though, had, again, especially that later generation of liturgical reformers, especially some Americans, we'll mention in a second, uh, advocating things like mass facing the people, removal of altar rails, stuff like this. There were already people, my, as my point, trying to anticipate what the council was doing before the council even met, with the expectation, by the way, they would sign off on all their changes. And so what happens is, um, by the time you get to the, the council's end, um, the, um, a lot of the bishops' conferences, and I know basically this, the, the, the story of the American, uh, the U.S. bishop conference better than anything else that I'm going to talk about here, but I think something like this happened in other places as well. Um, this reform was, of course, a massive undertaking. These bishops, even after Vatican II ended, still had lots, still had to spend a lot of time in Rome in meetings. So they naturally sort of handed it over to uh, things like the uh, U.S. Bishops Committee on the Liturgy, the BCL, which was uh, uh, sort of refounded in 1965. And who was he the head of this committee? People like Father Frederick McManus, who had been Pariti at Vatican II. He was also a member of the liturgical movement. He is also one of the people who was pushing for all those other reforms that you don't see in uh, Sancto Sancto Concilium, but you will see almost immediately when the new mass goes into effect in 1964. Um, and to give you an idea, by the way, of the type of type of things that are being said, and I don't have time to go into this, there are so many of these you know, liturgical commissions, these experts who get into these, uh, these bodies, who actually implement it. 
this is a, from a, a quote from a book published in 1966 uh, by um, Father Clement McNas uh, McNasby. <clears throat> The book is called Our Changing Liturgy. He was, by the way, a member of the board of directors of the liturgical conference and uh, also the editor of the uh, uh, Jesuit Journal of America. He's a Jesuit. Uh, and he stressed, of course, the necessity for change. This is the whole thing's worth listening to. Quote, another reason why change is particularly urgent today in liturgy as in other human elements of the church's work is the unprecedented acceleration of change in the world as a whole. Indeed, change may well be the most characteristic trait of our time. Since we learn by doing, it was plain that by experiencing change in our everyday life of worship, we might all become better prepared to accept further changes called for in other conciliar decisions. Liturgical change was to be only the beginning, but it did establish the principle." Unquote. And so as people like Father McManus, Father McNasby, who, um, and again, I mentioned the Bishop's Committee on the Liturgy, they produce things like, um, <clears throat> excuse me, um, uh, liturgical guides, worship aids, um, guides for priests to celebrate the new mass according to temporary norms, stuff like this. I mean, just all sorts of things. All of which, of course, implicitly or explicitly give uh, the impression that the council said, yes, turn your face toward the people. Yes, have a temporary altar that's freestanding, which becomes the permanent altar. Uh, yes, uh, the whole liturgy should be in the vernacular, those sorts of things. Uh, and I, again, I, again, I can't say that for a fact that it happens that way elsewhere, but I think this is mostly how it happens. You have these people trying to jump ahead of the council or, or I, I, don't, I can't judge motives because I don't have enough evidence, maybe manipulating it for that purpose. Um, and the other thing that's important to note about this is that, and this happens a lot as far as I can tell, is people, uh, if you like, um, <clears throat> what's the word I'm looking for? Speaking in the name of either the council or the pope justify the changes. Well, the Pope wanted this, or the Council wanted this, or clearly the Council was going this place. So we're going to go do this. This happens all the time. A sort of usurpation of the Church's authority, basically, to do this. Um, I say this because sometimes you get people saying, well, there's this open rebellion. It wasn't quite like that, as far as I can tell. It's almost like they're, again, sort of speaking in their name, or like forging their identity, if you like, in a way. Um, but this happens at a much higher level as well. <clears throat> because you will have uh, innovations of bishops and theologians as well. I mentioned um, all the, and it's only three new Eucharistic prayers that the Concilium comes up with. You also have Episcopal conferences uh, doing this as well. Once they learn that's what's going on in Rome, you have uh, groups of bishops in places like the Netherlands, France, Belgium, uh, Germany, you're getting a, seeing a pattern here. These are the most progressive countries, uh, uh, liturgically and, and otherwise, in Europe. They begin to write their own Eucharistic prayers. By the late 1960s, there are well over 100, about 130 circulating throughout uh, Western Europe, over 100 in France alone. So they're literally just making things up as they go along. More, uh, uh, more than that, you have people, by the middle, by 1965, questioning things like, the traditional understanding of the Eucharist, attacking transubstantiation. Edward Skilibex is a, again, a Belgian theologian, issues a, a book questioning the, uh, the Eucharist. This causes Paul VI to freak out. He issues an encyclical called Mysterium Fidei, reasserting the traditional doctrines. So you're already beginning to see things getting sort of more wild and more wild um, as you go toward uh, the end of the 1960s. You also, of course, have, of necessity, huge changes in music. 
and the reasons should be pretty obvious. If you get rid of Latin, you can no longer use all that wonderful Latin music. Why? Because the melodies they have are they're peculiar to the Latin tongue. It's cadence. You can, well, you can try. To, you can try to put them fit into English words, but they don't match up well at all. I've heard people do this, trying to you know resurrect tradition. It sounds terrible because they just don't match up. Um, so this of necessity meant that you had almost instantaneously a lot of music getting into the liturgy uh, that was popular right away. Uh, you've probably heard of folk masses. In fact, I had heard of folk masses before I did this lecture. Um, and I did not realize, not actually, it's not actually folk music. <laughs> uh, folk masses are actually basically stuff like pop songs done in the style of like Peter, Paul, and Mary. You know, faux folk music, you know, folk pop, I'd call it. It's like, like you know, uh, like country music today is not really country music, it's pop music with a twang. Uh, it's the same thing. It's sort of, it's, 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 a, it's a pretension, but it's, by the way, you can find, there's a whole website, by the way, dedicated to keeping alive the memory of these folk songs. I won't say anything more about it. I, I want to be charitable, but, uh, and there's plenty of this music on YouTube. And again, it's not, it, it's not like it's horrible music. It's just so, it's dated. You can tell it was done in the 1960s. Um, <clears throat> And in fact, you're going to have two, I'm going to mention two trends, two things that sort of fill the void, uh, one besides popular music. You're going to have a group of people, a group of seminarians meeting at St. Louis University in 1970. They begin picking up guitars, writing music, and playing their hymns at mass. And uh, they will become wildly popular. They actually will be sent by their superiors to Berkeley in the early 1970s to record. Um, and they will actually, they are the ones who will set the standard for modern Catholic music, worship music. Uh, and they become known as the St. Louis Jesuits. And most of the hymns you've probably heard growing up, if you grew up in the Catholic Church and you didn't go to a, a Latin mass community, you would have heard things like, Here I am, Lord, Be Not Afraid, uh, City of God, One Bread, One Body, On Eagle's Wings. These are all written by these five some of them are no longer priests. They left the priesthood, but these are five men who wrote a lot of these popular hymns. And they sold, by the way, multiple. They still, they still, they're still making music um, today. Um, and they, that I, I'll give you an anecdote. Just uh, I had a friend who's a um, liter literary director, uh, fairly traditional, Nova Sorda, but fairly traditional. I remember him telling a story how one time, you know. You know, people use the same words, often don't mean the same things. He was talking to a parishioner at one of these Johnson County parishes on the Kansas side, and I uh, was asking, well, what kind, of, what kind of music do you like to hear? He said, well, I like good, you know, traditional Catholic hymns. Like, oh, okay, good. What, what, kind, of, what kind of hymns do you, do, you, do you like to hear? He's like, well, what, kind of, what, what, what traditional hymns do you want to hear? And he thought he was going to say things like, you know, whatever, Venesantis, but something like, you know, whatever. And he rattled off a bunch of, you know, on eagles' wings, uh, uh, those. And, and again, I'm, I don't mean to be. I'm not disparaging the man. Tradition is just what he grew up with. That's all he's ever known. And so that's you know, when you begin to, yeah. And so this is the sort of the changeover that happens. It's almost like the first two thousand years of the church's existence that just just went poof. And it's kind of amazing how this happened. Then finally, and I, yeah, this is just broad coverage because this is there are more things that change than I can even enumerate here. Um, changes, at the, changes at the altar. <clears throat> the practice of taking communion in the hand, it was mostly universal that you take it kneeling, usually at a communion rail. 
um, while standing, originated in Belgium uh, in the early 1960s. Um, and after the council began to spread to other countries in Europe, mostly France, Germany, in the same countries basically over and over again. Paul VI got wind of this. He canvassed the world's bishops uh, and asked them if they should um, allow this. And they basically said no. They said the, they said the, 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 um, the discipline should remain unchanged. However, in 1969, the, the Congregation for Divine Worship issued a policy reaffirming, reaffirming this discipline, but allowing an indult um, uh, to allow this under certain conditions. And, um, and so allowing an exception for this. By the early 1970s, it had become the norm in most of these European countries. It was introduced in the United States in 1976 by Cardinal Joseph Bernadine of Chicago. Uh, and it was a sort of canon law switcheroo thing where basically one of the, one of the, um, one of the standards you had to meet in order to get the exception uh, for the indult was it had to be a practice of long standing. It had never been a practice in the United States. But he managed to finagle it until all the bishops agreed. They sent it to Rome. And that's why it changed. Um, yeah, uh, 1960, uh, excuse me, 1969, uh, 1973, you began to have questions of, okay, are lay people allowed to be active as Eucharistic ministers? And this is all, you've heard the phrase if you've gone to an ordinary parish, extraordinary minister, ministers of Holy Communion, right? You know what that word extraordinary means? It means it's an exception, right? That's how it began. Uh, they issued, again, if, if the congregation's really big, they're not a priests, exception. Again, within a few, like a few years, it becomes the norm everywhere. We're not supposed to be Eucharistic ministers or lay people uh, as a norm. It just became a norm through widespread disregard of the liturgical law, and then Rome just basically let it go. Uh, I could go through a lot of other things, but I want to keep this um, up, almost hit my limit here, so I'm going to try to try to get to one last thing and <clears throat> finish up. And that is, of course, the growth of the traditionalist movement, which uh, I should point out to you, again, maybe people have a lot in their heads. Um, and it's true, it couldn't have happened without him. You probably have your mind, um, Archbishop uh, Lefebvre. The movement really starts early, uh, in 1965, about the time the council's beginning. And in fact, there are lay groups that form almost immediately. Um, the two that come to mind are very prominent today. One is uh, Una Voce, which uh, began in Paris in 1965 and became international by 1967. It's a lay, lay uh, association meant to promote the Latin mass and to promote that tradition, uh, as well as the Latin uh, mass side of the UK, uh, which um, uh, actually, if you go to the website, there's a lot of good resources there. It's really well done. The uh, head of it's a uh, um, a guy from Oxford, PhD, really intelligent guy, Joseph Shaw, very good, uh, interesting guy. Um, they're already pushing to retain uh, this tradition. So it's not just, I, I have to point that out, because it's, it's more widespread, I think. Having said all that, uh, having said all that, um, it does become a, a, a focal point, of course, of controversy. Uh, when Monsignor Archbishop Lefebvre, um, in the late 60s, uh, a bunch of seminarians in Rome begin to complain that they can't, you know, yeah, a lot of things. But of course, about the liturgy, they're not getting uh, taught the liturgy, the traditional liturgy. Uh, he agrees to try to form them into a into a, a society. He gets the authority from his bishop in Fribourg in Switzerland, uh, and it's founded in 1970. And someone donates a, a building to them in Cone, Switzerland, which will become a seminary, which will become the international headquarters of the Society of St. Pius X. 
Long story short, there is a visitation from, uh, from Rome in 1974. Uh, it doesn't go very well. Um, there begins to be a falling out between uh, the Curia and Archbishop Lefebvre. Um, uh, he begins uh, sparring with Rome. I'll probably have to have a whole talk to go through this. It's so complicated. Uh, eventually, they revoke the, the, uh, his bishop revokes the canonical status of uh, the society in 1975. And uh, when, in 1976, uh, Lefebvre, uh, in defiance of uh, Paul VI, um, ordains, uh, starts ordaining priests, uh, he is suspended. His faculties are suspended by Rome. So I'm going to leave it right there. That's the beginnings, basically, of the traditionalist movement. Uh, and so by the late 70s, of course, you have this, this thorough change, obviously. Things have gone from this, oh, we're going to reform everything, it's going to be great, to everything's kind of exploded. Well, I should say, of course, that most people just go along with the changes, obviously, in the pews. Um, but you will have this fundamental, there will be people, we'll get to Rod Singer in a second, who are dissatisfied with the way the reform actually goes. That's actually really what's going to actually change in the last 30 years. The people who are initially for it, I mentioned Father Boyer, people who have been uh, before the council one of the reforms they turned against them essentially uh, not totally in the way that uh, Archbishop Lefebvre did but they will be the sort of turning point there and I'm only briefly go over liturgy since uh, Paul VI highlights briefly there was a thaw once John Paul II becomes elected in 1978 between him and Lefebvre he actually issues an indult 1984 to allow um, um, SSPX to celebrate according to the 1960 missile by 1988 they seem to have a plan in place to reconcile um, the SSPX in May of that year it's signed by both the, the uh, secretary for the Congregation of the Doctrine of the Faith which is Joseph Ratzinger and uh, Archbishop Lefebvre what happens is Archbishop Lefebvre gets spooked. Um, he doesn't trust Rome anymore, basically. But, but, uh, long story short, um, they're going to have bishops who are going to be ordinaries for the, uh, the society, mostly chosen by Rome. Uh, they, they fall out over this because he just doesn't trust the people in the Curia to choose people who he thinks are faithful tradition. And so he basically says he's going to go back on it and ordain four people bishops to continue. Again, he wants to continue the tradition. He does this uh, in June of uh, 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 1988. He's excommunicated the next day by Paul, uh, John Paul II. And a commission is set up, Ecclesia Dei, which uh, basically uh, allows the members of the SSPX who want to come back into communion in Rome and have their own communities to do so. This is where the F, uh, FSSP comes from, if you don't know. Fast forward 17 years, Joseph Ratzinger becomes Pope. Uh, why is this significant? He's the one, of course, who was trying to, and to this day, I think, regrets not being able to make that deal work in 1988. Um, he uh, wants to try to improve the quality of liturgy, the ordinary liturgy, so he issues a motu proprio, uh, Sumorum Pontificum, in, in 2007, which, quote-unquote, liberalizes the old missile. What that means is, before this, you had to have... Um, if you were a priest, you had to have a bishop's permission, basically, to, to do it. Um, you couldn't do it publicly. You could do it privately. It basically, as long as you have, if you're a priest in a parish, you, as long as there's a group who persistently asks for it, wants it, then, you can, then you're allowed to basically have it. What it means is, because this is one of the big debates going on between people who are okay with the reform movement, people who didn't like it, um, people like Rodzinger was, was the old mass ever officially appropriated? And he says no. It literally says that in the document. Uh, which all the people who who were for the reforms hate him for, by the way. Um, 
that's one last milestone. I'm going to put the last one up there in 2015 uh, because this is personal to me. Uh, the uh, Anglican Ordinariates were created in 2009, if you don't know, Benedict XVI created a structure uh, called Ordinariates for groups of Anglicans who were conservative, who wanted to come into the Catholic Church uh, corporately as parishes, as bodies to come into that in 2009. By 2015, they ha had the actual liturgy uh, ready for them to go, which mixes elements from the Anglican tradition, member uh, elements from the prayer Book of Common Prayer into the Roman Missal. And um, if I might say, in many ways, it's actually much more in continuity with the Roman tradition, and oddly enough, in some ways, than the, the newer rite actually is. And um, one last code of this. I'll say this. I'll mention this just because it's worth mentioning. Benedict XVI, of course, lifted the excommunication of the four bishops of the SSPX. In 2016, for the year of mercy, this is not necessarily liturgical, but... Pope Francis actually gave uh, faculties for SSPX priests to hear confessions. It was supposed to be temporary. The next year, he uh, extended it indefinitely. So he's allowing them to hear confessions now still, even though they're not technically uh, in communion with Rome. So that's, yeah, a lot of stuff to go over. It went longer than I wanted it to. Conclusion, Lex Orandi, Lex Credendi. A few things, and I'll get to you guys' questions. One, there's probably one thing you haven't heard me talk about in this entire lecture. That's, uh, you know, was, you know, you haven't heard me talk about the laity, right? Where was the outcry from the laity for reform? Like, and that's the thing is there never was any outcry from the laity for the reform of the liturgy. Um, this really was a matter of elites in the church making this change. Their, their justification was we know more because we're liturgical scholars what will actually help the people worship mass better. And um, it, you could say, you know, you can, get, you can say that in a prejudicial way. They foisted it upon people. I think most of them had good intentions, however it turned out. But it is, it is mostly a change from above. Uh, it's mostly a change from above. Um, and one of the things that this is, uh, it brings about, this, uh, this change, uh, one of the things, the issues that I think it brings up, if you're going to ask, you know, why are we having these fights, come back to that, that, uh, that uh, anecdote I began the lecture with. <coughs> Um, it's helpful to compare the debates over liturgy uh, in the 1960s with debates over those over sexual morality. Because, uh, on the one hand, you had liturgical experts manage to convince the Holy See to tamper with and alter millennia of tradition, just barely leaving it intact. Um, and at the same time, the concilium was reshaping the liturgy, according to modern man, as it were, uh, a whole other commission of experts was convening in 1962. That would be the Pontifical Commission for the Study of Problems of Population, Family, and Births. That, by the way, is the commission that uh, issued a report in 1966 recommending to Paul VI that he relax the church's uh, traditional teaching on contraception, which he famously rejected two years later in Humanae Vitae. And uh, again, tradition or expertise is the expertise guided by human reason the ultimate determiner of what we believe? If it is, then guess what? That's not faith. <laughs> That's reason. Uh, unless sacred tradition really has to be the sort of standard for deciding things. And your job as a, um, um, well, your job, your calling as a, uh, a Catholic is to preserve that. Um, it, it makes, uh, you can see the sort of difference. You can also see, by the way, why a lot of people reacted the way they did to Humanae Vitae. Um, as the uh, writer John Zmirak put it, um, I'm quoting from a nice essay of his, he says, quote, if you could change the mass, 
ordinary Catholics concluded the nuances of marital theology were surely up for grabs. This is probably the biggest thing about the liturgical reform. Um, sometimes people, when they criticize, they'll criticize this or that thing, individual things. I've criticized them in this lecture. Um, probably none of that was as important as the general impression it left on people. Literally, if every, every year something new was changing about the liturgy. Well, if that's changing, what else is going to change? Um, to give you an idea, you know, um, uh, just imagine if tomorrow Donald Trump gives a speech uh, in the White House, or gives a press conference, right? And instead of the American flags standing beside him in the, the White House, you know, press office, press briefing room or whatever, um, you had two Confederate flags behind him. What do you think would happen, right? <coughs> People would freak out. Because what are you going to show? What's that? What's that mean, right? Um, that's almost like what happened with liturgy. People thought, hey, you, you changed all this Latin stuff. Why not change your stance on section? Why not change? What's the difference, right? I think people who went to the 60s thought they were sold a bill of goods, is my point. They thought the change in the liturgy was a down payment for other changes that were supposed to be coming. It's one of the things that explains the bitterness about all of this, I think, to a certain degree. Um, and of course, you've heard this phrase, you should have heard this phrase, lex orandi, lex credendi. The law of prayer is the law of belief. Uh, you pray what you believe, and you believe what you pray. So when you change the liturgy like that, people thought, well, yeah, naturally, you're going to change those other things, right? And I'll leave you with one last thought. One thing I think um, happened with the liturgy with some of these liturgists who kind of went toward this very, you know, uh, adaptive notion of the liturgy. They, they used a term for this uh, in the 1950s, pastoral liturgy. That is to say, whenever there's something, whenever you have, you're looking at the rites, if something is not easy for people to understand, it has to be changed. It's always justification for making more changes. Almost as if the liturgy was, again, like software, like an iPhone, right? And, you know, God is basically Steve Jobs, and his, and the church is basically his technician who goes out and updates your software every 10 years. <coughs> Um, that's not what the church. That's not what the liturgy is. That's not what the church can be. What's the church? It's the Ark of the Covenant, right? It's the Ark of the New Covenant, and the goal, of course, should be to preserve as intact as possible that sacred uh, tradition that carries within it. Um, and uh, that is the end of the lecture. Finally. <laughs>